This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. taking all these books? I thought I'd take some light reading in case I got bored. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Literary Treks, Literary Treks 274, uh, in which we will be talking about Star Trek books and comics. And joining me as he does every week is my partner in crime in this endeavor, Bruce Gibson. Bruce, how's it going? I'm doing well. Yes, I'm doing well because I'm getting ready to go to Disneyland. And so life is magical. Oh, I'm jealous. I'm jealous. So you're you're going to Disneyland and you're not going to guest star on The Edge, a Discovery podcast, but you are going to the Galaxy's Edge. Am I correct? Yeah, that Yes, that is correct. So oh, yeah. I'm so jealous. Something about me and Edges lately. I don't know what it is, but yes, not going to be live from the edge, but going to be on the galaxy's edge among other Disney things there, of course. Oh, so exciting. That's... I went to the incredible coaster. Like I love the incredible, who was a credit coaster, the Incredibles roller coaster and uh, California adventure. I, I, I love that one. Oh, cool. I, I haven't been, I've actually never been to uh, the, the California adventure park. I've only been to Disneyland, but well, uh... then you need to come. Well, I, I wish I could. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, I spend all my money on Star Trek novels. Speaking of which, we're going to be talking about one in today's episode. We're going to be talking about Star Trek, The Children of Kings by David Stern, uh, Captain Christopher Pike novel. So looking forward to that discussion. But before we do that, we do have a comic to review and this is the third issue of a series that I am really, really enjoying. And that's Star Trek Year Five. So, wow. Third issue of Star Trek Year Five. And I'm enjoying this just as much as I did those first two. What did you think of this one? Kind of uh, initial thoughts. I was really enjoying this one, and I still enjoy this one, but I will say I'm starting to wonder if this series is always going to be a throwback to previous episodes. Hmm. Interesting. Which I don't want it to be all the time. Right. Yeah, that does get old fast. And and this one in particular 
throws back to uh, an episode that's the favorite of a lot of people. I know a lot of people really enjoy this episode, and we get in this one kind of a sequel to the episode A Piece of the Action from the second season. Um, but before we kind of get into that story, uh, we kind of get a bit of a recap of what's happened before. They have that Tholian youth aboard the ship, and one of the plot lines through this novel has them attempting to uh, create an environment for it and communicate with it, and Uhura gets kind of a nice little starring role in that little bit of the story, which I thought was kind of cool. I think Uhura uh, in this comic is one of the best parts of the comic. We'll get to it later, but I really do enjoy her character in this comic, even though she's not in it a lot. But what she does, I think, is really great for her character. Okay, interesting. And also, before we get into kind of the main part of the story, we get an interesting uh, moment with Kirk because he's communicating with Carol Marcus. And you can see a young David Marcus playing in the background behind her. And we know from Star Trek two that she has asked Jim to stay out of his life and not be a part of his life. And we get kind of a reiteration of that here. Uh, I love <laughs> this scene, like the lighting of it. Cause Kirk's sitting in a dark room and the only light source is the monitor that Carol's talking on. And it's just, it's really moody and really well done. Uh, yeah, exactly. I love, yeah, the lighting, the darkness, the, the look down at Kirk sitting there in his quarters at the desk. Um, I do like that. I don't like the view screen. Uh, <laughs> David Marcus just, I don't know. It looks like, uh, you know, one of those, you know, Dick and Jane books <laughs> from the fifties or whatever. So I didn't yeah, like that part. It's kind of torturous almost that like, he's just running around playing in the background where while Carol's having this conversation with Jim because she's like you have to stay out of his life and never see him as he like runs by in the background and Jim's probably like like oh my god this is horrible why, why are you doing this to me and I did think that too because she says you know I don't want you involved I don't want you in his life and there he is there in the background he's watching yeah it's it's torturous oh brutal well from there we get into um the main part of the story and the enterprise finds itself near Sigma Iosha two, which of course was the gangster planet in a piece of the action. They all had Tommy guns because they'd been culturally contaminated by the Chicago mobs of the twenties book. But at the end of that episode, Dr. McCoy left his communicator behind. And in this comic, we see kind of the effect that that has had on Iosian society. Uh, this is interesting. They, they've, they've developed warp flight and they're trying to explore space and all this kind of stuff. And I kind of had to remind myself reading this, that this is only three years after that episode. I don't know. What did you think of this? <laughs> uh, that was my biggest problem. I would say this is not a favorite of mine because of that. I, I love the concept of going back to this planet, but because yeah, one thing I did, I couldn't remember. I was racking my brain. I'm thinking, okay, we've had to have a novel or a comic that we've gone back here before and dealt with this, you know, communicator being left behind. I couldn't really find anything and I couldn't remember anything. I mean, we've had to have had something in the past similar to this. I mean, I know that we had something in the trials of James T. Kirk comic, but, uh, of one of the characters, I can't remember which one from, 
from the planet coming to testify. But, but this was just out. This is just weird to me because it's been like just two or three years and the whole planet is more futuristic. It's It made like a hundred year jump in just a few years. And I'm thinking they're building like a new exit ramp near my house and it's taking them three years just to do that. Like, how can you rebuild cities and technology and, and even the society can't adapt adapt to that kind of change that quickly mm-hmm. I, I had a problem with that if this was something where oh it's 30 years later i could i could go with it you know but not just three years later mm-hmm. yeah it definitely strains credibility a bit um yeah the follow-up uh the trial of james t kirk it was the kid that they that he promised a piece of the action to uh, uh, right. that had come back saying he never got it and was suing kirk and I, like you, I kind of thought there had been some follow-ups as well. Um, I couldn't really find anything either except, uh, of course, uh, Trials and Tribulations, the Deep Space Nine episode. One of the original ideas for that episode was that they would return to this planet and there'd be like a starbase in orbit and they would have basically become Star Trek fans. But uh, they ended up going a different direction. Um, and I, I feel like there must be a comic or a novel somewhere, but I... I don't and nothing that i've been able to find either um but it's it's something that has come up a lot like wanting to follow up with this and uh kind of see where what's happened and yeah this one just simply for the fact that it is only three years after um and and they do try to explain it like they managed to access all of earth's history through mccoy's communicator somehow and decided like well we're not going to go that route we're going to you know make sure we avoid all that and it still doesn't make a lot of sense though and how is that possible through his communicator that they have all this access to earth's history now i can understand if he left a tricorder behind Mm -hmm. but would all that really be in a communicator yeah it doesn't seem right to me uh yeah but uh they they say something we tinkered with the operating system and upon restart the language database cross-referenced numerous documents and and that began their education so i don't know if it's saying that those documents are all stored on the communicator somehow i i that doesn't seem right to me but they kind of hand wave it and do that really quickly so that you won't notice but I noticed. <laughs> yeah. I just, I guess revisiting a piece of the action coming back three years, I think I would have liked to seen more of the Chicago mob, like, you know, use the communicator and maybe has developed some new technologies, but society is, it hasn't evolved that much, but there's been some change because of that, that they need to fix, but it's not as drastic in technology as this is. Mm-hmm. We didn't, we can't go from the Flintstones to the Jetsons in three years. Yeah. Yeah. It seems a little crazy. That said, I am enjoying the story because maybe because of the absurdity, but, uh, you know, just for the interest of what's going on on this planet and how they're going to, you know, figure this all out. So we find out that they've happened to, uh, come to this planet during an election week. And yes, you heard me right, election week. Apparently, they have elections every six weeks for a new president of the planet, which uh, is kind of interesting. And uh, clearly, the arrival of 
Kirk, Spock, and McCoy has had a huge impact on the planet because they're kind of idolized as, uh, what did they call them? The, the fathers or something like that. And, you know, they're greeted by these astronauts who give them a feast and they go down on the planet, find out about the whole election system and that sort of thing. But then they're attacked by a group called the Astro Liberation Party. And we find out that it's being led by Jojo Cracko, one of the <laughs> one of the bosses from the episode, A Piece of the Action. And uh, they kidnap Spock. And uh, I don't know how spoilery we want to get towards the end here, because the end of this really did surprise me. Yeah, I think it's the last part of it that I enjoyed the the most. I mean, if, if you just get over the fact that, oh, you know, the development so quickly in three years, if you just accept it, then, yeah, to see Krakow and, and this, you know, liberation group come over and, and attack and, and why they're doing it. And then they kidnap Spock and what they're using Spock for. Um, I found it very interesting. It, it got me interested to see what happens in the next because, yeah, I don't know if we want to go to the very end because it is kind of a spoiler, uh, but then it leads to the next issue. So this is definitely at least a two-parter, mm -hmm. if not more. <laughs> and that ending, I do love that ending. <laughs> I love that whole frame. That last page, <laughs> I well, not that page, but there's a preview of next month's cover. Yeah. That I want as a poster. I absolutely want that as well. <laughs> <laughs> but also we get a resolution to, or not so much a resolution, I guess. We kind of get a cliffhanger for the other part of the story as well, where Uhura is um, trying to communicate with this Tholian youngster that they have. And they've put him in engineering because it's the area of the ship most able to contain him, I guess, in this uh um, force field they've constructed to hold his atmosphere, but there's some kind of problem with the warp core and there's uh, decontamination protocols have gone into effect and there's a cloud of irradiated plasma ejected from the warp core. And this uh, one ensign in particular is trying to get into the engine room because he's saying, you know, we're, they're trying to save the ship. The Tholian has done something to the warp drive. He's sure of it. And Uhura is standing in his way saying, you are not going in there. And there's kind of this weird standoff at the end with, uh, with Scotty and Uhura on one side and this ensign leading a couple of other crewmen in their attempt to kind of get into the engine room. What did you think of this? It seemed like a pretty abrupt turn. I would have kind of like to get a bit more of, you know, how this crewman got to this place, but uh, it, it's definitely an interesting turn. It is an abrupt turn. I, at first I was like, wait, what? he's going to try to shoot it? It, it seems very unstarfly, but we've had officers that go a little too far or whatever. But I love the scene because I mentioned Uhura earlier. So she had this crystal earlier that she wants to show to the Tholian and, you know, try to communicate with it. And then the next time we see her, she's in the standoff and I love her pose and she's got the phaser out, you know, extended out in her left hand and her arms out extended and her right is, you know, back in a fist, like, you know, she's ready to fight. And it was just like, it just shows how she can be sensitive and caring and, and want to communicate at the same time. She's, you know, 
a badass ready to fight this crewman and take her stance and protect its life, the Tholian's life. So I, I, yeah, I thought she was really cool in this. Yeah, I, I thought it was a great moment for her. And I'm really curious to see how this plays out and what happened in engineering and what's going on there. So that's a, that's a cool cliffhanger there for sure. So overall, um, you know, putting aside those kind of issues with the, the absurdity of what happened and yet the timeline is kind of crazy and, uh, it's kind of a sequel to what was already a really absurd episode. So I don't know. I'm still really enjoying the story though. I'm enjoying it. I don't think as much as you, it's, it's my least favorite of the three so far. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Those first two were really strong to be fair. So yeah, this, I, I, it's, it's almost not even that big of an insult to say this one's not as strong as those, but But uh, I will say I'm probably more interested. This has got me hooked that I'm really interested in the next one. Definitely. Yeah. Me too. For sure. Great. So before we get to the feature, we want to respond to some listener feedback from the Babel conference. And this is all about episode number 272, a fun Borg romp in which we talked about the TNG novel resistance by J.M. Dillard. So to kick us off, Kimberly Lawler has a comment here talking about the novel. She says, thanks for an enjoyable episode. You sum up the book pretty much perfectly with the fun Borg romp line. It was a fast paced, exciting read starting off with the first contact like opening and going from there, but it ultimately doesn't hold up to scrutiny. I did really like Beverly in this one as she felt most realistic. She had the most real angst and emotion about Picard turning back into Locutus, but she was professional and did what she thought was necessary. She figured out the solution to the Borg Queen through science and was the one who actually managed to stop the Queen. And she even counseled Worf effectively. They never had a particularly close relationship on the Enterprise, but they did respect each other. Worf's character progression was also well done. I didn't remember he was supposed to have been first officer on the Titan, so his specific arc in this novel worked well for me. Even with some of its flaws, I think the novel could have, bum- could have bumped up to 4 out of 5 if the ending had been less rushed, like you both said. Picard should have been far more affected by becoming Locutus again, but we got almost no reflection after the fact. So uh, she also does point out that the book is currently 99 cents on Kindle at the time that she made this comment. Uh, So she was able to pick it up for a good deal there. And uh, she missed it the first time around like Bruce did, even though it looked interesting. So she got to read it for the first time here, thanks to that deal. So I want to use this comment to point out, keep an eye out for those deals because every month a new set of Star Trek novels tends to go on sale for 99 cents on Kindle. So uh, keep your eyes out for those. We don't tend to talk about them much on the show here because we're so delayed when the episode comes out that it's not really worth it. It's a couple weeks after. So, uh, but if you keep an eye out for those, you can really pick up some great deals on Star Trek novels. Yeah, you can find those at simonschuster.com and click uh, look for the Star Trek section for the ebooks, uh, and it'll show you a deal, the 99 cent deal. So we have Justin Ozer that also made a comment saying, I love the Enterprise War cover too. It's a simple but beautiful depiction of Disco's version of the 1701. I think the back cover that has Pike, Spock, and number one was revealed after you recorded the episode, and I love seeing that too. And you are correct, Justin, that back cover came out after we recorded. And uh, I, 
not a big fan of it. I mean, I like, uh, I don't know. The poses just look a little weird to me. <laughs> like they don't look natural. Yeah. It's the Spock's especially just, he's yes. kind of holding this phaser and looking off to the side. Like, I, yeah. Um, I, I do like those characters in those uniforms. So I like it for that, but, uh, there's yeah, something a little weird about how they're staged there. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of the staging of it, but yeah, I mean, it's great seeing them on the back cover. So I'm glad they're there. Definitely. So Joey Slowinski comments, it's funny that you mentioned the release of the Enterprise War cover. I was actually with John Jackson Miller at a Star Wars event when he was waiting for the publisher to reveal the cover so he could show it off. I ended up buying one of his TNG books, Takedown. It was pretty good, and I'm sure you'll get to it soon enough in your series on post-TNG. As I mentioned to him in the comments, we have actually covered uh, John Jackson Miller's novel takedown in a previous episode that was when it was me and matt rushing and that was episode number 92 if you want to check that out joey also says i read resistance a while ago and felt similarly about it it's an interesting story but it isn't my favorite there were definitely a few moments when i said come on really while i was reading great work as always guys well thank you so much for that comment joey we really appreciate that and uh yeah, John Jackson Miller, we hope to have him on the show again uh, when his new novel comes out as well. So be a nice little reunion. I've read quite a few Star Wars novels, but not nearly as many as I've read Star Trek novels. But I used to say John Jackson Miller was my favorite Star Wars author. And then when he started doing Takedown and Star Trek novels, I'm like, yay, he's coming over here to do these. And uh, yeah, it's it's great. We've had him on the show and I hung out with him once at a Star Wars event star wars celebration one time so but we talked star trek it was kind of weird well i've I've read exactly two star wars novels uh so don't take me as any kind of authority but i loved kenobi i thought that was a really wonderful novel exactly that's probably one of his best i like that one a lot yes so uh david Plummer says boy this is a toughie i remember it back in the day but in retrospect, it feels like a laundry list of the problems I have with the Borg starting in First Contact and Voyager, giving, giving them a villainous face and tilting them more towards a personal hatred, doubling down on the insect parallel with the Queen as an almost throwaway, replaceable character, tucking the tech hard enough to turn people into Borg and back. And that's not even getting into cosplay Lacutus which feels like a betrayal of just how deeply damaged Picard was by that experience back on the show. Maybe a fun read on its own, but I think that would make me too angry to reread it. Yeah. You know that. Yeah. It's almost like too much of that Borg stuff. I I don't need, you know, exactly David. That's all I have to say. Mm. (laughs) Exactly what you said. Yeah. I really totally agree with what you said about Picard and, and the effect that that had on him just kind of not, being focused on enough in this novel, in my opinion. So good call on that. Justin Ozer offers a different opinion, though. He says, I felt very differently about Resistance as I really enjoyed it. I liked the similarity of the dream sequence at the beginning to First Contact as it showed the nightmares haven't gone away for Picard. I thought Talana was a great character. The idea of a Vulcan counselor is a fascinating one. I see what you did there. And I liked that she was a contrast to the rest of the crew. I love that the Borg are different and out for revenge instead of instead of assimilation. 
I hadn't read Resistance before, but Destiny is one of my all-time favorites and it has its roots in this novel. I can see the issues you had with some parts, especially how Janeway is depicted, but I did thoroughly enjoy the novel. I'd give it 4 out of 5 Bruce Gibsons in Locutus Cosplay. That's a terrifying thought, Justin, but thank you for that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and he also Uh, says, by the way, I'm sad that Royal Jelly isn't an actual Patreon benefit for Trek FM. (laughs) But if everybody votes for it, maybe we'll get it. Who knows? (laughs) You don't want that. It's not good. (laughs) You you wouldn't look good as the Borg Queen is what I'm trying to say, Justin. (laughs) (laughs) And then Matt Rushing says, this is the last comment. Honestly, this is one of the laziest Star Trek books I've ever read completely agree with y'all and that it feels shallow and too quick well matt rushing i just want to say thank you for listening to literary tracks <laughs> since you used to be on the show <laughs> definitely well we heard from a lot of uh, listeners in that group of comments thank you guys so much for all the comments and uh, thank you justin for a couple comments this time around as well you know i enjoyed those comments so much and having feedback, especially from Justin, I think it's only fair that we get more feedback from him. So what do you say we jump over to the feature and talk about the novel, the children of Kings by David Stern and invite a special guest to join us. Ooh, special. In the feature today, we are talking about an original series, Star Trek novel, sort of, It's The Children of Kings by David Stern, released in 2010. And joining us for this discussion is a special guest star, a frequent friend of the show, Justin Ozer. Justin, welcome back. Thank you. Great to be here. It's been a few months. Good to finally be described as friend of the show. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. There's just something that feels more special about that title, even than associate producer. So, yeah. Well, I mean... You know, and and why not both, right? Excellent. Yeah. Great to be here. (laughs) And uh, somebody who comments to our posts in the Babel Conference, too. I kind of feel like I hear an eye roll every time and it's like, well, and Justin had to say, (laughs) because I do comment on every single one. (laughs) We definitely do appreciate it, though, because a few of those shows, you know, we've been trying to read those comments uh, in the episode and that sort of thing. And a few of them, if you hadn't have commented, there wouldn't really be much there. So... Don't worry, we do really appreciate it. And it is interesting when you comment on every show because you see some where maybe it's the more popular books or something where there's tons of comments and then other ones where it's like, hello, anybody around? So it's interesting. Yeah. If you did comment, I think we would make a big deal about it on the show. Oh my gosh, Justin didn't comment on this one. Something must be wrong. And you know, sometimes I'm really busy because it comes out on Sunday. Sometimes I can listen to it and comment that day. And other days, it takes me a couple days to listen to it in my schedule. And I'm like, okay, I better do this before I know when they're going to record so I can get it in. (laughs) (laughs) I really do think like we would be calling you trying to see if you're okay if there was a week that went by. That we didn't see your comment. (laughs) I'll let you know if I have a vacation or something comes up in my life so that I can't comment, but that I'm still okay. Yes, yes. please give us the heads up, yes. All right. Well, in this particular episode, you get to comment a lot more than usual, being that you're on the show. So, uh, The Children of Kings. Now, this is kind of in our continuing quest to uh, revisit Christopher Pike novels in the wake of Anson Mount's performance as Pike in the recent season of Star Trek Discovery. So uh, this was one that I had read years before. 
and I'm revisiting it now for this episode. How about you guys? Is this the first time you've read it? Yeah, first time for me. I mean, in fact, I think there's there's quite a few TOS novels that I have not read. Um, I'm I'm reading more, but yeah, I haven't read this one because I wasn't reading novels until about five years ago. So, yeah. I've been reading novels for quite a while, but I bought it and it's been sitting on the shelf, but for some reason I just never read it. I kept wanting to, but of course I'm like that with every Star Trek novel, everything, you know, I keep buying them and I want to read them, but just never get around to all of them. So this, yeah, is my first time. It's been on your shelf for oh. nine years? Uh, Probably, yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, so um, it has been out for nine years, so uh, I, I I read it very shortly after it first came out in 2010. So th- it's been a while since I've revisited this novel and uh, I definitely have some thoughts on it, but we'll, we'll get there eventually. Um, but this uh, novel we're told takes place three months into Pike's first five-year mission as captain of the enterprise. Uh, so he's just kind of starting to get to know his crew. Um, they're trying to, they're sort of starting to get to know him And their current mission involves making contact with the Orions for a possible alliance against the Klingon Empire. And the Klingons are suspected of recently having attacked a starbase, killing all aboard, including somebody very close to one of the main characters that is one of the big focuses of this novel. So just kind of first impressions, what are you guys thinking of this setup? How are you uh, kind of picturing this in your mind as we start out this novel? Yeah, I mean, I I have to admit, we'll talk about it a little bit later, but I mean, this did come out shortly after the 2009 movie. There's a little afterward that it was supposed to be, in the author's mind, some kind of prequel to that movie. So I, I knew that coming into it. (laughs) So kind of coming into it, I was kind of trying to think like, okay, does it fit or what's it like? So I had these thoughts about it. Uh, I I, I don't know. Like I I saw the setup. I thought it was interesting. This is the first novel that I've really read that's had so much focus on the Orion. So I thought that was really interesting because you don't get to see a, you know, a whole lot in, uh, in the different televised series. So I, I was, I was intrigued by it and I like, you know, Pike's Enterprise and that that period of time. I pictured the Enterprise from Discovery. I pictured mm. Anson Mount and the rest of the cast from Discovery. And uh, because the book had that feel to it more so to me than the original series, yeah. um, mm-hmm. it, it, it seemed a little more, I guess, modern, I guess you could say. I also was picturing the Orions from Enterprise. I was picturing oh. a lot of them like that. Um and then, of course, Dr. Boyce, I was picturing as the actor who played him in the pilot. So, you know, I had a mix of actors and things going on. But uh, I will also say, I don't know what it was, but I read the first two chapters and there were times where I'm reading pages where I'd get past a paragraph and get to the next and think, wait, that I'm, I'm lost. I, go, <laughs> I went back like there was I, I don't know if it yes. was the writing style it took me a while to get used to it. But there was just things mm-hmm. it was like, you know, like the, it would make mention that something happened. I would miss it. It was really yeah. weird. Yeah. It, you know, I had that general impression, too, of, of just like slight confusion throughout. And yeah. I mean, so it's credited to David Stern, who's credited as Dave Stern on other novels. I've read other of his novels and not had this issue. But like in going through it, I was like, OK, 
So what's happening here? And then it would seem like it would be moving up towards some revelation and then yeah. stop <laughs> and like maybe pick it up mm-hmm. like way down the line. So, I mean, I feel like this was one of those novels where I had to keep like flipping back and thinking about it like, okay, what happened and what's the whole sequence? Because it seemed a little complicated. Yeah. And it's interesting you guys bring that up because I had very much that feeling as well. It just there's there's a lot happening and it felt very frenetic and fast paced and just kind mm-hmm. of jumping all over the place. And I want to go back to something you said, Justin, and we'll we'll get into this now because okay. <laughs> I think it's a good time to get into this because when I first read this book, I just read it from the start and I was going through this going, <laughs> what the heck is going on? Yeah. There's these small little details that don't jive with what I know about Star Trek mm-hmm. and, and continuity and stuff. And then at the very end of the novel, there's an author's note that says, you know, the 2009 Star Trek film has shaken things up and this novel is, you know, meant to echo that and set in that universe. And I'm going, oh, well, that would have been great to know at the start of this novel because I was really confused. Yeah. And it still bugs me because (laughs) it doesn't even quite fit into that universe, even Mm -hmm. just going by the first 2009 movie, which was all that was out at the time. Uh, in that movie, they say the maiden voyage of our new flagship will have to wait. We're doing this mission. Right. (laughs) But you know, this obviously this is three months into a five-year mission on that ship. So that doesn't make sense either. So yeah, like I was really annoyed and confused by a bunch of stuff through the whole novel and then got to the end and went, oh, well, if I had the will to reread the novel with that in mind, I'd probably enjoy it a lot more, Uh, which I did this time around. So there is that. But I think that kind of frenetic feeling was what he was going for too. Like it really felt like that, that universe, the Kelvin timeline where, you know, Kirk's running through the corridors with a big hand, you know, to warn the bridge. Like it all just kind of had that feeling of kinetic energy and really fast paced Mm. scene, move to scene, move to scene, really fast, snappy dialogue rather than long thought out Mm -hmm. uh, prose. Did you get that impression as well? I mean, it's really interesting that you say that because I think there are parts where it's going quickly, but there are also parts where, They're kind of pausing to kind of reflect on things or have some interesting conversations. And there's this whole part where like Pike is being interrupted from like taking a bath and it's like that kind of breaks that style, right? (laughs) So like it's interesting because I think overall that's true, but there were other parts and, and I was trying to feel like where it fit in. I mean, like you, Bruce, I did think of it somewhat... Um, in terms of discovery, I thought of Anson Mount as Pike. I thought of Rebecca Romaine as number one. I did think of Leonard Nimoy as Spock, though, for some reason. And I also thought of the ship looking more like, you know, the original series or in the cage or something like that. So I had like this weird mix of things. And then, you know, knowing going in that it had something was inspired by the Kelvin timeline, I was like, I don't know if I really see that at all, except for some weird references that don't make sense in the prime universe. Like, you know, they have access to Ferengi information, right? That was the one part where I was like, huh? (laughs) So, yeah, it's interesting because like you, it's interesting, Dan, that you didn't have these preconceived notions and you were confused. I did have these preconceived notions and I was still like a little bit confused about it and trying to fit it in my mind because on the cover, you know, it has Pike and Spock, as you might see in, in the cage era. But then I almost, I couldn't think of 
of it as anything but but Anson Mount with the it's it's interesting because of the way that it's written especially for him in number 1 I was seeing more of the discovery characterizations even though those didn't exist yet so mm-hmm. odd overall yeah I, f- I found those two performances worked really well with this novel um there were a few times I kind of my brain just kind of jumped to Jeffrey Hunter for some reason and then like sometimes it was Anson Mount but number 1 was very consistent Rebecca Romaine, yeah. interestingly yeah, enough. Yeah, yeah because they're like, and, and it's and it's interesting because like you see number one in command, and she's very much like, come on, facts, please, right now, come on, and that's very much Rebecca Romaine's performance, I think. So that yeah. was pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Well, and what's interesting to me is like you're saying about the author's note. I forgot about that. I didn't read the author's note until I was about halfway through the book. But I remember reading that author's note when I first picked up the book years ago. And I remember Ooh. years ago thinking, oh, I read this because it's supposed to be a prequel to the 2009 movie. But then I forgot about it. So as I was going in and picturing it more like the Discovery cast and the ship on Discovery, then when I read the author's note halfway through, I was like, oh, the Kelvin universe. But I still didn't go there mentally. Because it's like you said, Dan, it's like in the 2009 movie, it's the maiden voyage of the Enterprise, but they're on the Enterprise on this. However, and I was going to look this up and I forgot, there was an IDW comic early on, I think it was in the ongoing series, where there was a previous Enterprise in the Kelvin timeline. That was Constitution class. Oh, yeah, it was the, uh, I think it was the Countdown to Into Darkness series featured that. I was thinking it was one of those, yeah. Which uh, interestingly wasn't out when this book was out, but- I was like, retroactively, I wonder if one of those guys is in in when in this discussion is going to bring up that enterprise because that could kind of work. But I really don't think this is a prequel to that movie. I think it's it, it's just he was looking. Hey, I'm going to write it in that style, or mm, okay, but not necessarily mm-hmm. a direct prequel in that universe. I, I really don't think that's the direction because it didn't. It, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah, I think. If that was his intention, and and it could well have been, um, the author's note kind of makes it sound like it is intended to be a prequel to that movie. Uh, there's still things that he got wrong, right? <laughs> and and I I kind of think of this as a myriad universes novel, maybe, but it's mm. just very slightly off from the prime universe in the Kelvin timeline. And I mean, people know that I'm not a huge stickler to canon when it comes to uh you know minor um aesthetic issues and that kind of thing but this novel goes beyond that because uh you know even though we met the ferengi in enterprise we didn't know they were the ferengi right and there's no way that they would have had access to like an fca database in the original series timeline when the official first contact is until next I don't think so, but maybe like he was thinking of that episode acquisition from Enterprise and like, oh, they know who they are without yeah. really thinking that they don't actually know who they are. But yeah, mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah, I guess I just kind of looked at it as not necessarily Prime or Kelvin, just loosely based in both timelines. Just mm-hmm. this is a yeah. pipe novel. It can fit in anything. Based on Star Trek created by Gene Roddenberry, right. but doing my own thing kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. That's, and that's kind of how I approached it this time. And and knowing in advance that it has those issues, I did enjoy it a lot more this time. Uh, I really think if they'd have put that author's note at the start of the book, it just 
would have been that much better. Yeah, but. it's weird. I wonder why they put it at the end. I wonder if the editor was like, nah, we don't want to like really confuse people that it's actually tied in. But if you got to do it, <laughs> put it at the end. <laughs> mm. That could be. Yeah. Or, I mean, we haven't had any Kelvin Timeline novels. So at that time, maybe they really weren't licensed to do it. And so they couldn't put the front of the book, but they can mention an author's note that he kind of based it as a prequel, but not direct, you know. There, there are the Starfleet Academy Kelvin novels, though. Mm-hmm, those are really yeah. the only ones. Which I never understood why they never did any other novels outside of those. If they, if they could do them for the Academy novels, which were young adult, why couldn't they do the more adult ones? Well, they did have those four planned, but it was, as far as I remember, it was Bad Robot that said, we don't want you to do these. So right I, I, I actually, so when I had posted about this, I like to post about this in different Facebook groups for Star Trek books and comics. Um, Greg Cox, one of the authors actually like put a comment in there because someone was confused. They were like, was this one of the ones that was supposed to be shelved? I didn't think they did any. So he put in a comment there that I wanted to read out if I can, because it's kind of interesting oh, yeah. to get his perspective. Mm-hmm. So if, uh, listeners want to see this. This was on the Literally Star Trek uh, Facebook group, which is a, a great book uh, group. So Greg Cox said, let me clear up some confusion here. And he's talking about the Children of Kings. This was not one of the four Kelvin novels that got shelved. Those were by Alan Dean Foster, David Mack, Christopher Bennett, and myself. And it had nothing to do with copyrights. There was simply an executive decision to leave the Kelvin universe alone at that point. I don't know what the reasoning was and never asked. For what it's worth, all of us authors got paid in full, so I can't complain. But none of that has anything to do with The Children of Kings by David Stern. And the afterwards, Stern mentions that he was trying to capture some of the feel of the recent movie, but it was never officially supposed to be a Kelvin Timeline book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm glad he jumped it. in to give that perspective and clear it up a little bit. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Which I think is interesting. I understand Bad Robot's position on that, but then why was the comic line continuing? I mean, that- Yeah, I, I, I remember that was, I, and I don't know if that was just a rumor at the time or something like that. I remember something about Bad Robot uh, asking them not mm-hmm. to do that, but that might be total hearsay. So please don't yeah. <laughs> take my word. I for do that. hope someday they end up just publishing those shelved ones just because they'd be interesting to see. <laughs> yeah. I don't care if they directly connect in continuity or not. Yeah. yeah no, them. it'd be great to see them. But mm-hmm. I know in a few cases, uh, a, a few of them are kind of not able to now because Christopher Bennett has said that he used most of oh, the really? ideas from his novel oh. in, um, uh, the Face of the Unknown, his original okay. series novel, and some other works and stuff too. So, uh, cannibalized that a little bit. So, but uh, David Max, I've I've heard him say that he'd love to see it published still. So, mm. never know. Someday, indeed. So, the main character of this book, I would say, with the besides Pike, who's also kind of a main focus of the book, we get Dr. Philip Boyce, which I thought was a really interesting choice because this is a character uh, like almost all of the characters from the cage until Discovery we've never seen outside of that and don't know a lot about. Uh, we have a couple meaningful scenes with him in the cage, but besides that, he's kind of a blank slate. And this novel is really the first to focus on the character of Dr. Boyce as well. So in this novel, we learn that he has a daughter named Jaya, uh, an adopted daughter, uh, who has been killed in this attack on the starbase that they believe is the Klingons uh, at the beginning of the novel. 
Uh, what did you guys think of the novel's characterization of Boyce and, and how the story used him? I mean, I think, first of all, I was surprised to see he was so much of a focus. I mean, I would think he'd be on the cover if he was such a focus. But um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, he is somebody who I think is an interesting character, but you don't really see that much of in in the cage. And so it it was kind of fascinating just to to see the author build out the character and who this person is, what he cares about. I mean, like any Starfleet doctor, he cares about saving lives and preventing harm and all of that. But at the same time, it was interesting to see him kind of reflect in his own head about where he is in his career, all the stuff that he's been through and all of that. So I thought I thought it was really great. And I mean, from what you can extrapolate just from a few scenes, I mean, it's probably not too hard to be true to the, the characterization in a few scenes, but but I thought it got built out pretty well and, and was and was pretty interesting as a perspective to see like what's going on both on the enterprise and, you know, the other places that they go. I think this is my favorite part of the book because I wasn't expecting that. And because we haven't learned that much about Boyce or seen much characterization and focus on him before is the, some is that's the thing that I really enjoyed because I was really getting into his character because it was something different. I mean, we've already had some Pike number one Spock novels. We've, reviewed some of them here on the show but then to get one that's more focused on Boyce I was actually enjoying that I was kind of glad Pike was off to the side for a while because we got to know him a little more and see how he handled the Orions and you know we've never seen him in a situation where he's on his own and he's got a you know he's got to handle that mission himself and just mm-hmm. how he would do that and how he responded to things and then yeah the backstory with his daughter and how they came to be together I mean, that was actually something that was more original in this book than anything else. Yeah, I, I enjoyed the focus, I think, on Dr. Boyce. I, I had this feeling while I was reading it that it didn't feel like he was really true to the character that I knew from the cage. But then kind of reflecting on it, I'm like, how much do we really <laughs> know about him from the cage? Right. So there really is kind of a big blank slate to work with there. And, you know... Why not make him more interesting than just the old country doctor that I kind of thought he was? Because we have that. Like, Mm -hmm. McCoy's done that. Let's do something different. So, I thought this was a really cool characterization. I do have to say one of my favorite things from the novel is just totally ridiculous, silly that I loved was uh, when, you know, Pike wants him to open up. So, he starts making him a, a drink. And Boyce says, what are you doing there? He's like, ah, sometimes people tell their bartender things they'll never tell their captain and i'm like ah so Uh (laughs) you know if this is a prequel to the cage which it kind of is and kind of isn't that uh you could see that like that little kind of laugh he says he does when he says sometimes somebody will tell their bartenders Mm -hmm. things they'll never tell their dog that was pretty good like ah it's like a little inside joke with them (laughs) now i love that (laughs) yeah the thing i thought also is that i didn't know for quite a while and maybe it was addressed earlier and i didn't catch it it wasn't until later in the book that i understood it being three months after uh the the enterprise went on its first five-year mission and maybe that was mentioned earlier but i didn't know where that was in the timeline until later there was a mention about three months and Mm -hmm. so like comments like that i was like is this before or after the cage you know i wasn't even sure (laughs) so i just kind of put that out of my head as to it doesn't matter when this takes place so yeah it's just it's sometime before kirk's time 
You know, I was so mm. interested in when it took place that after I read, I think, the first chapter, I went to memory beta <laughs> to see what it said. And I'm like, ah, <laughs> oh, really? three months after, about 2251 is what they claim. But yeah, <laughs> so that kind of set my mind as to where it was. Yeah. At this point, I should say that we're going to get into spoilers now. So brace yourselves. If you haven't read the book and don't want to be spoiled, you might want to pause here and come back. Uh, if you don't mind spoilers... By all means, listen on. So in the course of this novel, Boyce is kidnapped by the Orions. Uh, they, there's an away team on the Orion ship and, you know, there's some separations, there's some fighting and Boyce gets captured and it turns out they want him to do medical research and we'll get a little bit more into what that's all about and, and that sort of thing when we talk about the Orions a bit, but Boyce is cut off and working with these people, and he eventually finds out that the Orions were in fact responsible for the attack on the Starbase and not the Klingons. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about the Orions here then, because like we said earlier, they haven't really been delved into much in other places in Star Trek. We get a little bit of them in Enterprise, uh, a little bit in the animated series, but that's about it. So, um, what do you guys think about what we learn about the Orions in this novel? I thought it was kind of an interesting setup because there is a bit of a blank slate for their history and what's happened before. So, you know, the author is setting up this thing that they were this important power, what, thousands of years ago, um, and that this, this woman who is calling herself the Talith, I think it is, um, is kind of uh, saying that she's the the rightful head of the Orion government or whatever confederacy and is trying to unite them more. So I thought that was kind of interesting because I, we usually think of the Orions as just like all these little clans and pirates kind of off doing their own thing. So it was interesting to see someone who was trying to do something bigger to restore them to previous power. So I, I kind of like that aspect. Yeah, I'm glad it wasn't just Orion slave girls about pheromones and right, all that. Yeah. You know, I, Although I like it was that about too. pheromones. <laughs> there was pheromones, yeah. And it, and it was interesting, too, that Dr. Boyce was able to inject people on the crew to suppress the pheromone effects that would have on them. And I kept waiting for those to just kind of die off at some point, and all of a sudden people couldn't resist the Orion yeah. girls, you know. But yeah, I agree with you. It's like I like that whole backstory because it's – you know, it's about the history of Orions and what kind of dominance that they used to have years ago and how they've evolved to where they are now is totally different from where they were before. So I kind of like that past Orion period that I'd like to see that in a book, like, you know, actually go mm -hmm. back a thousand years or however long it was. As a student of history, I love the idea of, you know, the study of an empire in decline. So thousands of years after their height, you know, the remnants of this civilization and they've, they've kind of devolved into, you know, criminal syndicates and loose clans vying for power and that sort of thing. And I, I, I like that idea of, you know, the, the shadow of its former self. And, you know, in thousands of years ago, it was a, you know, quadrant spanning power that had influence and that sort of thing. So I, th I thought that was a really interesting exploration of that. And I, 
I'm not sure. I, I'm not familiar with like the Star Trek role playing game of the you know the past, but I feel like that was an aspect of it in part of the Orion history. I could be totally wrong about that, but I remember hearing that Ooh, somewhere. Now I, go I don't know. Look if at that. that. <laughs> Do you mean like yeah. the, the FASA RPG? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, wow. And uh, I, I didn't look it up myself. I should have, but I, I remember hearing somewhere that that was kind of the idea behind the Orions then. So, well, that's I don't know. Yeah, I've heard of that RPG, but never, <laughs> not really that familiar with it. Yeah, me either. Yeah, yeah, me neither. Unfortunately, maybe someone will tell us all about it when they listen. What good are we to be on the <laughs> show if we don't know that information, right? <laughs> I know. If we haven't oh. played everything, read everything, experienced everything Star Trek that's ever been done. <laughs> that's sad. as a side note. I love when people ask me like about something that happened in some novel and they're just shocked that i've never like you haven't read all of them it's like it takes a long (laughs) time to read all of them it really does and i I intend to eventually but (laughs) i'm there with you but it's gonna take a while longer totally so the talith uh like you said she's kind of hoping to unite all the clans under her and and lead you know kind of a an orion empire resurgent this was an interesting character to me, and she's she's physically larger than most other Orions because she's been taking this substance that they discovered in the ship of an ancient Orion border patroller, basically. Yeah. Back at the height of their empire, they they were they took this substance that made them physically stronger and more potent and, and that sort of thing. And She's trying to replicate that, and they've had very limited success with it. And based on some research that Boyce has done in the past, she's hoping that he will have the skills to be able to replicate this and figure out the problems with what they've been doing and and recreate this stuff. So I really enjoyed this aspect. I thought that was an interesting kind of uh, turn for the story to take, where it's this, you know, idea of rebuilding the empire under her rule using this substance what did you guys think of that and and the substance's origins and stuff i mean i thought it was it was kind of interesting although so i mean it fits into this fountain of youth kind of thing as well like you can live a really long time with it or or age more slowly but also it i think it does this thing to make the the pheromones stronger and that's how she had her hold on power and all of that I kind of, I don't know, those aspects, uh, I'm not as much into something that, you know, makes you live forever um, or the aspect that you usually associate with the Orions, like, oh, they have, the women have these pheromones and, you know, men can't resist it. I mean, that part's, I'm just like, eh, I'm kind of more interested in like the technology that they had uh, because apparently they had this great image projection technology and some other stuff. So I wasn't as much into the, the serum part of it, it was kind of like, uh, uh, just there to get Boyce involved almost is how it felt, but I don't know. Hmm. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I liked it, uh, but it just, it wasn't that interesting to me. I mean, it was, it was, I like it having a little backstory to the serum, uh, and their veins coming out dark they kept sort of mentioning thing. that like big corded veins. Yes. <laughs> like, wow. <laughs> and kind of give, I mean, it was almost like a con type of thing, you know? Mm. It, it's, you know, the strength, like they're augments in a sense, you know? Um, but, but if anything, 
I found her character not as interesting as much as her daughter. I was more into the daughter's character and seeing her, you know, playing against her mother and with Boyce and kind of in the middle and trying to find like the right path. She wasn't so Orion's are the ones and this is how we do things. This is the only way she, she she's very open-minded to see where the truth lies. Mm. Mm. And of course the, the parallels between her and Boyce's daughter, which kind of messes with, uh, you know, how Boyce is dealing with the situation and that sort of thing too. Uh, You know, very, important for his character as well yeah i do have to say though like for for boyce's daughter like you get these little flashbacks but i felt like there should have been more of that we should have known more of the fuller story of who that daughter was and the things they went through i feel like you could have probably spent less time like trying to figure out something with the serum and more time like on this daughter story because i thought that was kind of you know something that's that's interesting because you know, I, I think what happened was what Boyce was dealing with this disease on Argelius and, you know, there was, he was working in this research facility and there was this uh, girl that, that was basically starving and like asking for help and he took her in. I thought that was like super interesting, but they didn't actually spend all that much time giving you that backstory. Yeah, now that you mentioned that, mm-hmm. I think I would have liked to have more of that, and not just a backstory on his daughter, but just you mm-hmm. know his relationship with her, and maybe how she, she changed things in his life, right? Let's, and how he yeah, was then, right? Right. Just yeah. this whole backstory about Boyce that just really would have enriched his character even more. That you know shows us how he responds and why he does things that he does mm-hmm. at this period that maybe he would have done differently before he had the daughter. I do have to credit the story with not going in a direction that I totally thought it was going to go. And that was, you know, the Orions attacked the star base and captured this piece of equipment. And Boyce's daughter was working on that star base as a researcher there. I totally thought that at some point, you know, Boyce would find her you know, tied up in some room somewhere. I didn't. I, I totally thought they would go wow, there because okay. that's just such a cliche. And I'm really glad they didn't. <laughs> because I thought the the way that they were setting it up with the flashbacks and him thinking about it, like he was kind of so sad, like thinking about it, that it felt like that was just it, you know, that she wasn't going to come back. I don't know why I thought that because you're right. It would have been more predictable to, to just find her all of a sudden. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that medical machine, the the cars, I kept picturing as like almost like a jukebox. I don't know why. (laughs) I just kept picturing it as a jukebox. (laughs) You know, I kept thinking of, wasn't there like a a car in the 70s, 80s called a Le Car? Oh, Oh, I don't know. (laughs) I I think... You're picturing boys driving a La Car. <laughs> <laughs> it just the cars made me think of that. Oh, now you're gonna make me I'm question whether up. that was a real I see thing. Car culture ground zero. I don't know what that is. I shouldn't be googling this right now. Here we go. The Renault La Car. <laughs> you know what's funny is throughout this novel, I was picturing kind of. Uh, Technology-wise, kind of Discovery-esque, you know, more futuristic looking than the original 60s Star Trek. But when it came to that machine, 
like my brain just immediately <laughs> went to the reuse of the M5 computer and the Atavacon yes. and yeah. the, the Beta 5 that, computer. That's why I made it a jukebox. <laughs> <laughs> I was totally like, they would totally yeah. just reuse that again and have like blinking lights and the big round monitor and stuff. That's totally what I was picturing. Like my brain couldn't help yep. itself. <laughs> okay. I have to ask a question since we're thinking about like how you visualize things. I had a really tough time visualizing the Klingons in this story. I was like, <laughs> do they have ridges? Do they look like the ones in the original series? Do they look like Discovery Klingons? I don't know. I, I just got really confused. Like, what do they look like? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I went with the ridges. I mean, I pictured the more modern, uh, not not like the Discovery Klingons, yeah, but the but, more like TNG and whatever. Or, or yeah. Enterprise. Yeah, but Enterprise. I, I, I pictured it that way too, because I was like, I don't know if I could take it seriously if it was like the TOS Klingons with some of this stuff. I don't know. Mm-hmm. They're it's Ruffles weird. Klingons. They have ridges. <laughs> right, yeah. Speaking of Klingons, I have to say I really enjoyed the character of Captain Kratos, who we kind of get the impression is like this regular Klingon that Pike has faced off against numerous times. So there's kind of this weird familiarity there. And towards the end of the novel, and we haven't talked a lot about Pike, there's this whole thing where his shuttle is seemingly destroyed, but it turns out he was actually rescued by the Klingons and he shows up in the 11th hour as being alive because we had no idea that he wasn't actually dead. <clears throat> yeah. Oh, oh I, I, such suspense. Would Pike be alive? I, I actually had a real issue with that because I love Pike as a character and I'm like, he's missing from like the middle third <laughs> of this novel. Like, what the heck, guys? I wanted to see more Pike. Mm-hmm. But because you didn't need that suspense, we know he's fine. Yeah. <laughs> and this is a common complaint that I have. Uh, and and this this story... Not as much as some, I think it, it's not hurt by you knowing, obviously, that he's alive uh, as much as some other stories are. But it still is a little annoying that they play I, that I th- trope. I, I think it, it for me, it, it's hurt quite a bit. I wish they wouldn't have strung it out so long. I wish it would have just been a short segment because I'm OK in some stories where I know there's an established character. People think they're dead. You see the reactions and that's kind of interesting. But it was a, it felt like a significant period of time mm-hmm. that... And Pike is on the cover and he's like missing for a lot of the book. So I, I don't know. I, that, that bothered me because I love Pike as a character and I wanted to see a bit more. Yeah, I but. didn't because I was really enjoying the boys character. Mm-hmm. Pike's, okay. Pike would have only taken from that. And I knew he was going to come back at some point. So I was I was All fine. Right. Like, you know, let's let's keep with boys for a while. As much as I enjoyed boys, I do still prefer like Pike in this novel. So. Just mm-hmm. me. <laughs> and and Pike does have some good stuff in this novel. Yeah. I will say the one part where it did bug me was uh, when he shows up with the Klingon and then we get kind of the, the backstory of how he was rescued and that sort of thing being told to us. And I think I actually would have preferred if, you know, two chapters later after he's seemingly killed, we get this is what actually happened. And then we follow him and the Klingon in their kind of adventures before they get back to the enterprise. Absolutely. Yeah. I feel like we're really rewriting this novel, aren't we? (laughs) (laughs) A little bit in some places, but yeah. It feels like when we talked about Surak soul, the uh, enterprise novel last year, and we were like, wouldn't it have been better if this and this, and (laughs) (laughs) but I don't know. That was just my experience. I was like, I like this, but (laughs) Mm. yeah. 
Yeah, I don't. I didn't feel like I needed to see anything improved or done differently in the novel. But as we're talking about it, there's some ideas that are coming up in the discussion that I think would have been really cool. But I mean, they aren't necessarily necessary, and it's not a bad novel at all. But mm-hmm. uh, you know, and I would have changed the name of Credos because I kept thinking of Fritos and. and <laughs> I, I don't know. This is all like a Frito-Lay Klingon thing for me because I mentioned Ruffles earlier. Yeah. And, and it kept making me hungry. Yeah. And you know, you know what happened to me? There's another Klingon Kazan and I thought Kazan, I couldn't help it. Yes. Yes. <laughs> wow. Where'd these names come from? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. No, the, the the names did strike me as a little bit weird. Um, Kredos in particular just seemed like not that Klingon-y a name if there's yeah. such a thing. Yeah, but a lot of people said the same thing about Worf when he was introduced too. Well, that's true too. Yeah, I don't know, but uh, I I do like this character, and I like the kind of uh, single mindedness that he has on their mission. And Pike's kind of almost riding herd on him because Mm -hmm. they're gonna go back to the Orion ship and rescue Boyce and whoever else might have survived. And this whole mission with them, this is kind of the reason I would have liked to have seen the actual rescue take place because I think they play off each other in kind of a really weird buddy, buddy yeah. cop slash hilarious. It's, it's way. like a Shran Archer thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And, and I like that idea that he's been this long time, um, kind of foil to him. Apparently like they've, they've encountered this, this one Klingon ship a few times. He's like Kirk and core. If you, you know, count the novels and stuff, because we only actually saw them once in the original series, but whatever. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I definitely felt that. And that's why I would have liked to see more of, of like Pike and, and Kratos on this uh, shuttle because, you know, they would have gone from adversaries to in the end, like, you know, the Klingon really has grudging respect for him. I want to see how that happened, what the early interactions were like, how he got that, but you just have to imagine it. But yeah, they, I felt like they were really great together, like this really unlikely pair that was on a mission. It was great. <laughs> yeah, it was like, oh yeah, we go way back. We've been drinking buddies for years. We just didn't tell anyone. That's what it felt like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> totally. In kind of that way that, you know, when you've been sparring with somebody for a long time, you just kind of fall into this familiar pattern and it it's not that much different than like two old friends, which is kind of weird, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. definitely <laughs> seems that way. So another important character in this story, of course, is number one. And I've mentioned that I pictured Rebecca Romaine playing this character and, and just something about her mannerisms and, and her actions in this novel just really lent, lent itself to that. Um, so she is, you know, in command for a little while while Pike's uh, missing And there's another commander that comes in who I do want to talk about after this as well, because I think he's an interesting character. But number one works closely with Spock in trying to figure out what's going on with the whole mystery of, of, you know, what's going on with the Orions and the Klingons, what's what's happening here. And she's very resourceful in gathering information. So what did you guys think of her role in the novel and particularly her characterization? I mean... I added it to the outline, so I loved it. <laughs> I mean, I, I, there's there's always been something I've been fascinated with the character of Number One, you know, played by Mangel Barrett and by Rebecca Romaine and some of what you see in the novels, because 
She's someone who's who's human, but almost has this more kind of Vulcan tendency for like being really concise about things and being really clear and logical about things. So there's always been something that feels kind of interesting about that. But at the same time, you know, she can smile and make a joke or whatever. So it's like she has these things from both of those worlds, even though she's a human that was brought up on a different planet and all this stuff. So there's just something a like about that and if it's always felt like a really strong character and I liked seeing her in command making all these like really tough decisions about what to do when they're about to go into battle and all, all this other stuff but I really liked seeing her working with with Spock because I think it's interesting because you get to see a little bit into Spock's thoughts and and he's like hey this number one person's he doesn't of course he doesn't say it like this but basically <laughs> like she's pretty great because you know she doesn't do all that banter that pike does it's totally unnecessary she's just like to the point but like they're working together trying to find this out and you see that she's like gathered all of this information that made me think of discovery because number one does like get all this information and all these resources and all that stuff so i just loved seeing that i felt like they could have used the character more in this novel because at a certain point you know pike and kratos and all the rest kind of take over but i but i liked seeing her you know, investigating all of that. And there's this away mission that she and Spock go on without getting the temporary captain Vlasidovich's um, permission. So, and they're down there like looking into the building, something happens, you know, something falls on, on Spock and, you know, she's the one that has to like patch his suit and all that stuff. I don't know. There was just something about it. Like, this is really great. I love this character and she's getting some really great stuff to do. And it just felt, like you said, very much in tune with Rebecca Romaine's number one, which I would have hoped to see more of in Discovery. But I feel like we got some really great stuff in here. And I was very, I was probably my favorite part of the novel was actually seeing her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I was picturing Rebecca Romaine too. And you're right. I mean, it just, it fits so well with how she portrayed that character. I think more so than how Major Barrett. Mm-hmm portrayed the character and so it really worked well and of course this novel was written you know almost a decade before we've seen rebecca romaine play the character but it worked so well for me that when i would picture her as number one it just it just fit because i was unsure if it was going to work for me Mm -hmm. when i was picturing that actress as the character in this but it worked so well it's like i could just hear the voice it seemed spot on it's almost like i wonder if the discovery writers read this book i doubt it I don't think it had an influence, but that's how it felt. It, it felt very natural. And it, same with the Spock character, the Ethan Peck character uh, actor that I was picturing worked really well for that. too. And it's so weird that I was picturing Leonard Nimoy the whole time, which is which is odd. But uh, that's how I saw it. And it's odd that you didn't think Zachary Quinto. Because it fits in the Kelvin, if it's a prequel to I know, it's weird, but that that was not a thought that entered my head in the least. I thought Ethan Mm -hmm. Peck just for a second, but then I was like, no, I can picture Leonard Nimoy for this, but I didn't think Zach Quinto at all. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, Zach Quinto and Bruce Greenwood never entered my head at all in this novel. No, no. Well, because so. I had to use the Discovery cast, those actors, because we've been saying for the last couple months, oh, you know, I wish they would do a Pike series or something. You know, they give us more <laughs> of that from Discovery. And now it's like, well, here's my chance. I'm going to make yep. this novel into a Discovery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, That's interesting. The Spock character for me, I, I wouldn't say it was 50-50, but there were definitely some scenes I was thinking of Leonard Nimoy. And then some scenes just the way the lines were written 
um, Ethan Peck's delivery just kind of worked for a few of them. It was, and, and I don't Mm. know, I, I, I almost didn't have a control in my head over, it's like, oh, I just heard Ethan Peck's voice there, or I just heard Leonard Nimoy's and, and I don't know exactly why or what the trigger was, but I, I definitely had a mix of both there. But I would say, Justin, you were probably those lines of Spock's in this book probably fit Leonard Nimoy's portrayal better. And the mm-hmm. and the lines of number one fit Rebecca Remain's portrayal the best, in my opinion, mm-hmm. even though I was doing Ethan Peck for Spock, I could sometimes I had to kind of tweak or force it just a little mm-hmm. more than, mm-hmm. you know, I think it would work more better with Leonard Nimoy. Mm hmm. I think it's great we can even have this discussion that we've had like multiple actors play these roles and we can be like, well, who do you picture for this one? Right. Yeah. Uh, what about one of the actors who were on Star Trek Continues? Do we use one of the? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's a thought. I never thought of that. Yeah. I know. We should do that sometime. <laughs> well, uh, one quick thing I wanted to talk about because I thought his character was really interesting and that's uh, mentioned briefly by Justin there, Dmitry Vlasidovich, the temporary captain of the <laughs> Enterprise that they kind of bring in when Pike's away. And uh, you mentioned one part in particular that I loved and it's where Spock is in his internal monologue trying to figure out like, how do I give the information to this captain? Pike likes it this way. <laughs> Number one likes it when I speak like this. How will he take it? And he's like, blah, 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 blah. No, just the facts. Oh, concise then. Okay. <laughs> like I just, I loved that little bit of peek into Spock's mind dealing with this new captain. Um, but overall I, I enjoyed this character because he's not, a bad guy we tend to kind of think of these outsiders who come in yeah. as you know the the other and you know number one kind of goes against his orders a little bit but he's kind of doing what he thinks is right his command style is just a little bit different what did you guys think of him i did think at a certain point like oh is he a bad guy i think because i think they had talked about how he had been involved in starfleet intelligence and there was you know bugging of the ship and all that that they thought he was responsible for but yeah i I kind of liked him i mean he was just somebody who is who is really straightforward and i don't know i mean it, it seemed like he was doing like a good job trying to balance these different circumstances i mean of course when pike comes back it's really weird because they're like so who's captain of the enterprise now? <laughs> Cause Pike's <laughs> been away long enough that they've installed this guy as captain of the enterprise. So, but I like the character. He was, I, I could just describe him. He was just kind of like straightforward and trying to do the best he could. He fit real well with the crew. It wasn't like Jellico coming on to the enterprise D situation, but I had a hard time with this one too. Cause he always seemed older in my mind, but he's actually Pike's age because they were in the Academy together. But for some reason I had a hard time believing that he just felt like an older character to me. Yeah. I was doing the same thing. I kept picturing an old guy and then they'd mention his like shock of black hair and young looks. And I was like, Oh, right. Young guy. Yeah. And then he was also <laughs> expected to probably be the youngest captain to serve or was going to be, or had been or something like that. And I was mm-hmm. just like, I had a hard time picturing him being young for some reason. Yeah, and I had that same issue. That's really weird. I wonder just the way he was written or or what. I feel like it was the way he was written because he just he just seemed like he's kind of settled. He knows his way. He's been doing this for a while. That's almost how he felt to me. Not like, mm-hmm. you know, he's still kind of new to this and yeah, trying to fit in. I don't that. know. Yeah, kind of, yeah, a gruff style, like a, you know, he's got his thing and he knows how to do it. And yeah. Almost like a Robert April. Yeah, Mm -hmm. or uh, 
or, or like a jellico, but without the, the other baggage that that implies, like just or kind Matt of Decker. Yeah. Mm. Or, or an old man in the park feeding pigeons. Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. I don't know. So there was one thing that I wanted to mention, um, which is, you know, toward the end of the book, we find out that there's actually been a couple of crew members that are part of Starfleet intelligence and are, I guess, trying to prevent the Klingons from having the the cloaking device. There was a couple of things about that. First of all, they said Starfleet intelligence, but were you thinking in your mind that they were really Section 31? Yes. (laughs) Yeah. That's what it felt like. That's what it felt like, but they didn't name drop it and that's, that's fine. But then also... So these these two Starfleet intelligence crew members, who was it? It was Harden and Hoto, the two female crew members. So they're in the mm-hmm. shuttle with the cloaking device, and Pike's like, I got this, and he destroys the thing. I was I just was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> he, what? I mean, I know that they're being traitorous and all this stuff, but like he just goes ahead and destroys it and kills them. And he's like, yep, wrap that up. And everybody's like, cool. I'm like, wait a minute. Like, I had to disable it or something. Yeah, did this just happen? <laughs> like, if anything, you think he'd say, "Let try to disable it," you know, or something. He right, just, but he's pow. like, but but like he's on the Orion ship, right? And he's like, "Let me go over to their weapons console here and just, dude, like, whoa!" I, yeah. I was totally shocked. I was like, "That does not seem like Pike would do that." <laughs> yeah, and, and that kind of blew me away too. And on on the flip side of that too, the fact that you know, these agents who are part of Starfleet intelligence just so quickly turn their phasers on their fellow crewmen and in yeah. the pursuit of this mission. That's like, a section yeah. 31 move. If I ever saw one. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It felt like there was so much, you know, skullduggery and that kind of thing going on with these characters. That to me was the one part where I was like, this is a little over the top for me. And, you know, even section 31 can be really bad, but they're, a little more subtle about it usually, you know, maybe not so much in discovery, but you know, other times that we see them they they usually use means that are, are just a little bit more subtle than just taking out a phaser and, you know, turning on the Starfleet crew, you know? Yeah. They were still learning in the 23rd century how to do it. <laughs> I don't know. I was thinking that this is section 31, but no one, knows about section 31 at this point. right and if they're mm-hmm. section 31 agents they've been told don't mention section 31 call it starfleet intelligence right yeah. yes and take <laughs> those black badges take their black off. badge and oh right <laughs> yeah, right right. <laughs> right yeah but anyway that was an interesting thing because in the end i was and i don't know i i could be wrong about this but it it did feel like there was a certain tendency in the novel to to kill female characters was that just me because <laughs> there were these two mm. starfleet intelligence people there was the the talith there was you know the daughter jaya and i think there were a couple of other ones it just seemed like it was i don't know skewed in some way but maybe that's mm. just me yeah you know that you mentioned yeah quite a few i mean that security officer was a male uh i forget his name tuval or something all uh, right the guy he i died. kept thinking of is tuvok <laughs> I know. I kept thinking yep, me too. for a while. That's one of those things where I was reading the novel. I kept thinking, is this a Vulcan? Because of the name sounded right. pretty Vulcan. Yeah. I, I totally was thinking it was a Vulcan. Then like, wait, no, no, he's not. <laughs> that was interesting. Yeah. There's all kinds of interesting characters and stuff going on. I mean, it, it just felt like there was all this stuff going on and it could be just a little confusing to try to keep track of it. I feel like I can usually keep track of what's going on in a Star Trek novel, but this one felt a little harder than usual. 
Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. I agree. It, it, speaking of that big security officer, because they mentioned how big he was, I pictured the guy from uh, Trials and Tribulations on the Enterprise Windows. that puts, puts his, his arm hand. on O'Brien. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's the guy I pictured. <laughs> that that to- that build, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> He's like a tank. <laughs> Well, I suppose this is probably a good time to go into our final thoughts, uh, unless there's something else you guys wanted to mention. Um, Justin, why don't you lead us off there? Yeah, so, I mean, I've been trying to think since I finished this novel and all day today what I really think about this novel, because usually I'm really clear, like, I love it or eh, it's just okay. But I was just trying to think, I mean, as we talked about it, there, I think there was a lot to like in this novel. It was interesting to delve into the Orion's history to see more of Boyce. Uh, I, I love the parts with number one and, you know, Pike was great and Spock was great. And you had this Captain Vlasidovich and all these other characters. So there's like an interesting mix of stuff, but it's like when you added it all together, it made for a less than satisfying experience overall for me. So uh, I don't know. It, it's just a little hard to sum up because it was the case that I, I even had to look through my notes today. Okay. Like what happened when, and all this stuff. So it was a little bit confusing. Um, but I mean, I, I did enjoy it. I mean, there, there was a lot to like in this novel. It just felt like there were certain things that could be improved or certain things that could maybe be clarified or maybe the, it it felt like sometimes there was a little bit too much that was going on. There's the Klingons, there's the Orions, there's this serum, there's, you know, Boyce and his daughter and, you know, all intelligence and all this other stuff. It just felt like it maybe needed to be simplified a little bit. I mean, it did join it overall, but I'd probably have to give it, um, as a rating three out of five Orion fountain of youth serums. All right. Not bad. Yeah, not bad. I yeah, I kind of agree with you on, on a lot of that. You know, we've been going through these different Pike novels because of Discovery, as we mentioned earlier, and I would say this is probably the weakest yeah. Pike novel we've hit. And again, Justin, as you were saying, we don't get a whole lot of Pike in it, so that's part of the reason. But I did like getting a lot more of the Doctor Boyce character, as I've mentioned. And that was a surprise to me. And I really enjoyed that. I thought number one was great. Again, yeah, there's a lot going on. It's moving fast. It does feel like that kind of tone of like the Kelvin universe movies, but uh, it's not a novel I'm going to remember for a long time. It's not a novel I'm going to probably want to pick up and read again anytime soon. Maybe, you know, in the year 2045 might pick it up again i don't know but uh no so i yeah but overall i enjoyed it i think it's a quick read it moves pretty quickly uh it goes fast so um i would give it i would play seven out of ten records in the jukebox (laughs) in the lacar's jukebox yes (laughs) yeah i i enjoyed this novel a lot more than i thought i would based on how i felt about it when i read it a few years ago uh on goodreads at that time i gave it one star <laughs> because mm, really? i wow. was so confused through the whole novel with all the continuity stuff and so annoyed by the time i got to the end that i really let that color how the novel impacted me so this time around with all of that kind of in the rearview mirror and knowing what i was getting going into it i actually enjoyed it a lot more this time around uh which wasn't hard but I, <laughs> you liked it more than one star. Wow, I, I did. <laughs> uh, 
But uh, like Bruce said, I enjoyed the uh, ex- exploration of Dr. Boyce's character. I liked the uh, interplay between number one and Spock and a lot of the other elements that Justin, you mentioned, I really enjoyed as well. Captain Vlasidovich and that kind of crew dynamic. And then Pike's whole part of the story, I really enjoyed as well. And I think like you, Justin, I would have enjoyed just maybe a little bit more of that. So yeah, this time around, it's it's still enjoyable. There's still issues that I have with it, the confusion you guys mentioned. And those continuity things do still bug me a little bit. And the fact that it doesn't fit well into either of the two timelines that it could possibly just kind of still annoys me a bit. Well, you mentioned the Ferengi. What else didn't fit into the original timeline? The other thing that really stuck out to me was uh, Yeoman Colt in the cage was a brand new replacement for Pike's previous Yeoman who was Mm. killed on a mission uh, just like in the weeks prior. And he was just getting used to her as his Yeoman. But in this one, she's his Yeoman, you know, three months into the mission well before the cage. So I thought, I thought it even says Ensign Colt. And that was the other thing too. And and this was just, I think uh, an editing thing. They called her Ensign Colt early in the novel and Uh, then called her Yeoman a number of times later in the novel. That was another thing that I actually noticed this time around. Oh, I, I didn't notice it was inconsistent. I just noted Ensign Colt and I was like, huh, that's kind of weird. Yeah. That, unless Yeoman is like a role that an Ensign could be, but I don't think that's how it works. <laughs> I don't think so, but somebody could very well tell us that we're wrong there. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so this one, I, I still, I think I have to go with um, three mysterious buildings that we don't know what they do out of five. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. <laughs> We don't know what they do. <laughs> Indeed. But that, if it's three that we don't know what they do, that means the other two we do know what they do. Yes. Sure. Yes, he's, he's saving those other two for another novel's rating. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> for another novel, he gave a one star that he needs to reread. <laughs> hey, I mean, you know, one star to three stars. It's, it, it's, it's a pretty good improvement. A bit this time. I just got to yeah. read it another time and it'll go up another two stars maybe. Probably not. No. <laughs> It'll go from yeoman to ensign. (laughs) Exactly. Well, Justin, I want to say thank you so much for joining us once again. Uh, We'll have to do this again sometime. Um, But until then, where can people find you online? Well, first, thanks for having me on again. Glad you haven't tired of me yet. <laughs> Never. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's it's always so much fun talking about novels with you guys. So you can find me on Twitter. I'm at TrekFan4747, where I tweet about nothing but Star Trek. Um, I tweet about lots of different Star Trek stuff about all the shows that you could imagine. And also, I will put a review up on Twitter about uh, the different novels that I'm reading. Uh, you can also find me on Facebook in the Babel Conference and also on a couple of Facebook groups about Star Trek books and comics, literally Star Trek, Star Trek books community group, and the Star Trek books discussion group where I also post my reviews of Star Trek books there. Awesome. Well, thank you once again for coming on and we really appreciate it. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Thank you. Always a pleasure. I really enjoyed talking about that novel with Justin. It was it, it was just that kind of novel that was fun not too serious had some maybe issues with it and also had some great moments it was a nice blend of you know things like that like i don't want to say good and bad but just it wasn't 
you know, perfect, but there's enough there that, you know, we can really dive into it and, and talk about different aspects of it that maybe we'd like to see a little different. I remember when you first proposed uh, having this novel uh, in the schedule and I was kind of like, oh no, that one. Uh, but in retrospect, I'm really glad that we picked it because going back and revisiting it, I found a lot more to enjoy in it this time than I did before. So, you know, I, like you said, it's kind of a mixed bag. It's not definitely still not my favorite novel, but I'm glad I got the chance to look at it through new eyes and, and appreciate more about it. So, yeah. I find it interesting because I remember you making comments about, oh yeah, I'm interested to see, you know, when we read that novel and see what you think. Like I took it to mean that this one was a novel that you loved. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Because I, wow. I was trying really hard not to give away anything. Like, I didn't want to influence anything. So Yeah. So, I was like, once we got to it, I was like, well, Dan's been wanting to read this one for a while, so it must be good. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, hopefully that helped a little bit. <laughs> I mean, I enjoyed it. So, that's all that counts. Definitely. Yeah, and I mean, you know, anybody can find anything in a novel that, that they latch onto and, and really like. So, you know, our opinions may not be your opinions. And if you've spent this entire episode screaming at us because we're, you know, wrong, <laughs> that's fine too. You know, we want to hear your opinion. So, you know, leave a comment on the Babel Conference and we'll read it on the show. But it's been a lot of fun talking about divergent opinions about Star Trek novels today. But it's not the only thing we've been discussing on the network, so here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.fm, Earl Grey. But just really in a most passionate way he could, in a compassionate manner, he, he goes to him, you are not alone, we're here to help you to do this together. And that means so much to me, like, you know, I guess being, being the youngest kid in the family, so I kind of think, you know, that, like, you, you don't want to be left out. So you know that feeling where no one's listening to you? But to see Picard really reach out to him and he wants to help him with all his might. But but there's just that there's that divide with him not being able to speak or hear. Melodic tricks. Eventually, you know, it, it, the screen goes to white and then you cut to uh, Ripley's ship that, that's been derelict for 57 years. And there's this very lonesome sounding string melody that's playing. And I don't think it's a direct lift, but it's it's certainly very, very similar to a piece by um, Aram Kachaturian. Uh, it's from a piece, a suite of music called the Gain Ballet Suite, and it's an adagio. The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. No, that we say goodbye to everybody this season. Like, anyone who walked off the bridge, like, if you had to go take a leak, they would, like, all stand up and say goodbye. It was, like, pathetic. The Orb. Maybe we all need to be comfortable with that discomfort of hearing something that's different from what we think. So instead of attacking, instead of pushing back immediately, we could just let it go. We could say nothing or we could respond with, hmm, that's interesting. That's not how I see it, but I didn't think about it that way either. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app.
to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and written review. And if you're not an Apple user, well, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, YouTube, in most third-party apps. And you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. If you'd like to help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Just visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all of the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways you can do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks, and it will come right to us. And then we can read it on the show if you want. And you can find the network on Twitter at TrekFM and on Facebook at facebook.com slash TrekFM. We also have a Goodreads group where we have bookshelves with all of our previously covered books, as well as a currently reading section so you know what's coming up in future shows. Plus, there are great conversations happening about all of the books and comics in the Star Trek literary universe. Just search for Literary Treks on Goodreads and click Join Group. We'd like to thank a special group of people, Norman C. Lau, Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandon Shemutala, Justin Ozer, and Jeffrey Harlan for their support of the Trek FM network, and for being associate producers for Literary Treks as well. Now, Bruce, when you're not taking over command of the Enterprise in the absence of Captain Christopher Pike, where can we find you? Uh, you can just call me Jellico, maybe. Nah, I don't want to be Jellico. I don't know who I want to be. I don't know where I am. I'm on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex, and you can find me on the Star Wars report, talking about Star Wars, and maybe I'll be talking about Galaxy's Edge, since I'm going to Disneyland. So, uh, you can also find me here on the network on Live from the Edge, the night after an episode of Discovery premieres, or Short Treks. When are we getting another Short Treks? I keep waiting to find out when. When, 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 when. Uh. Ah, Soon, I hope. <laughs> I know. And then, of course, you can always find me in the Babel Conference where Dan is lurking around. Because, Dan, when you're not pretending you're Starfleet intelligence, even though you're Section 31, where can people find you? You're not, you're not supposed to tell them that. Oh, dang it. Okay, well, now I'm going to have to change my handle on Twitter. I think I'll go with at Kertrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. And I'll keep that section 31 one hidden. Uh, you can also find me on YouTube. I'm at youtube.com slash Productions, where I do videos about Star Trek. I'm on facebook.com slash Productions, And like Bruce said, I'm lurking in the Babel Conference, sometimes commenting, but usually just liking your guys' posts. Well, thank you all so much for listening. And until next time, live long and read on. What do you call that light reading? To each his own, number one.